Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, KUNM News Director Megan Kamrick. 2023 is rapidly coming to a close, and we want to take this opportunity to look back at the biggest stories in New Mexico over the last 12 months. It was an eventful year with issues like abortion access, local elections for school boards and city councils, housing affordability and homelessness, climate change, redistricting, and the ongoing revenue boom from the oil and gas development. I'm joined this morning by a group of seasoned journalists to talk through what they saw over the last 12 months. We also want to hear from you. What were the most important New Mexico stories for you? You can email us at letstalk at KUNM.org or call us at 505-277-5866. Here in the studio with me, I have our own intrepid reporter and All Things Considered host, Nash Jones. I'm also joined by Sean Griswold, editor of Source New Mexico. He's actually coming in on Zoom this morning, along with Julia Goldberg, senior correspondent with the Santa Fe Reporter. And in the studio as well this morning, we have Andy Lyman. He's the editor of the paper. I wanted to start with another journalist, Jerry Redfern, who covers oil and gas with Capital in Maine, who could not be here with us, but graciously gave me an interview while he was on vacation. I asked him about the biggest stories in that sector. Tell me what the biggest stories you think you covered for the last year for Capital in Maine on the New Mexico oil and gas beat. What's the most important things we should be looking at? Oh, without doubt, money. Looking at the state budget. I mean, this past session that ended back in March, nearly half of the total budget, I mean, when you add everything together, um, came from oil and gas taxes, oil and gas based taxes. And it's undoubtedly going to be one of the biggest stories this uh, next year, too. As production has continued to rise in New Mexico and as oil and gas prices have stayed pretty healthy um, over the past year, um, even though they're not quite as high as they were last year, this continues to happen because the Permian Basin, the biggest producing oil patch in the United States, straddles the border between Texas and New Mexico. So every major and honestly as many minor (laughs) producers who can afford it are down there now trying to drill new wells and get as much production out now while they can. Now, there was a recent forecast that cautions that slowing oil production and lower prices are expected to generate significantly less federal payments next year and beyond. I think that it's really difficult to judge what's going to happen in the future as far as oil and gas prices are concerned. That's the whole thing about the oil and gas business. It's it's almost like playing the lottery. Also, we're looking at revised, possibly, oil and gas rules. I would say that's probably the second biggest story of the year because it's a story that's come back. (laughs) Initially, a group of environmental groups had written some updates to the bedrock law that governs how oil and gas is produced in the state, everything from essentially how you drill the well to how you get oil and gas out of the well to how you shut the well down at the end of at the end of its life cycle and everything that's in between. The oil and Gas Act covers all that. It hasn't had a major revision since like the 80s or 90s. And even the state's oil conservation division, the main enforcer of the Oil and Gas Act in the state has said that it's It's super duper due for an update. When it came up in the last legislative session at the start of this year, it was met skeptically, I think would be charitable, (laughs) was the charitable response for it, and essentially died after its second hearing in committee. But this time around, uh, Governor Luan Grisham, her office kick-started new discussions about this and brought, again, 
many of the same environmental groups to the table, as well as OCD, the Oil Conservation Division, which is leading the discussions, and a whole bunch of industry and legal folks in as well. And they're working on the same issues that got knocked down back in January. And the people I've spoken with are, are guardedly optimistic that they're going to come up with a workable bill. Now, you also covered her efforts to move into the hydrogen economy. We did not get chosen for the National Hydrogen Hub. She's cut some deal with Australia. Is there more you want to say about that at this point? Yeah, I I think that's something very important to keep an eye on going forward. You know, the thing about hydrogen, it's a really neat fuel. It's really cool in the way that you can get electricity out of this particular gas if you do it right. The big questions about hydrogen are over how it's created. And the big worry, particularly among environmentalists and climate scientists and others, is that people are going to try to make hydrogen from natural gas, which is a totally known technology, and it's sort of the quickest, easiest, and quite honestly, dirtiest ways to do it, where you essentially just break apart the molecules of natural gas, and you're left with a whole bunch of hydrogen after the fact, as well as a whole bunch of CO2. So what these hydrogen projects all have to have sort of attached to them, generally speaking, is huge carbon sequestration projects, which are these super expensive, super large projects, very regulated projects, where you take the leftover CO2 and re-inject it deep, deep, deep underground. It's extremely energy intensive, and it just costs a lot of money. There are still not any major COT sequestration projects on the planet that hit their goals, either in terms of the amount that they sequester or in terms of their monetary goals and meeting their budgets. So one last thing I'd like to note, too, is that it took me a few months to tie it together, but I had a story earlier this year about how a company called Tallgrass Energy is aiming to put a hydrogen pipeline from northwest New Mexico um, burning across the Navajo Nation to another point in Arizona. And I think that's actually a really big deal because it's not clear where the hydrogen will come from exactly in northwest New Mexico, but the main contender up there, again, is natural gas. But then also that this is kind of the first project like this of its size that appears to be happening in the country. Jerry Redfern, thanks a lot. Thank you, Megan. It's always great to talk with you. That was Jerry Redfern from Capitol in Maine from a phone interview that we did yesterday. Speaking of the legislative session, which starts on January 16th, we'll have a historically large amount of revenue, and this is a budget session. The state will draw in a record $13 billion. That sets the baseline for budget negotiations. Sean Griswold with Source New Mexico, I wanted to go to you. Uh, Jerry mentioned one project in the hydrogen area could go across uh, the Navajo Nation. Oil and gas development issues continue to play out in interesting ways around Chaco Cultural National Monument. Our colleague Alice Fordham covered this, as did your team at Source. It's showing a split in some indigenous communities. Tell us more about that. Um, Yes. So um, one thing that we're seeing first, I guess you need to center is that, you know, the Chaco area is considered cultural site. And that really became centered around the Biden administration. This was after um, um, several tribal coalition groups, including the Zuni uh, Pueblo of Zuni, all Pueblo Council, which represents all 19 Pueblos in New Mexico, members of the Navajo Nation, Hopi tribe, and then also Southern Ute and Utes, um, uh, Southern Ute tribes as well, um, are trying to center this area to maintain its cultural uh, cultural significance. 
um, to uh, stop and halt some of the oil and gas exploration in the area. Um, it was contested heavily during the Trump administration, but with the Biden administration brought in those protections. Um, and during a ceremonial um, um, ribbon cutting, if you will, that was going to enact a 10 mile buffer zone of, of, of the federal government not issuing new leases in the area, um, which was uh, hosted by the Interior Department. Um, Secretary Deb Holland was there. Uh, there was a protest. And what happened was that you had individuals from the Navajo Nation who are um, in this term considered allottees. You can't own land, but they're allotted land tracts. Those land tracts in, in and around Chaco, they argue, are um, providing revenues from oil and gas royalties. And these are families that are saying, we've had these royalties for um, generations, and this moratorium is going to basically essentially cut down those royalties for them. So they were... In, they were they were upset about the the ban. Um, it was prompted in some part by the Navajo Nation president Boo Nigren. This was uh, President Nigren's very first sort of separation from the Democratic politics that he is aligned with. While he's technically not a Democratic president, the Navajo Nation president is nonpartisan. Um, he's campaigned with you know Holland, with Lujan Grisham, with all of the Democratic representatives in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And he broke ranks from them and decided that he was also in support of Alati's rights. And that's where some of the division came from between Navajo Nation priorities, which then eventually did come out prioritizing saying we oppose this moratorium, um, and then some of the other tribal interests, which also does include Navajo people. So it's it's ultimately kind of a, a, a debate that even goes back for some people will argue centuries before even the US. So it's a very fascinating thing to watch and we'll continue to track it as we go forward. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Nash, we heard Jerry talk about regulation as well. You've spoken periodically with the Environment Department Secretary here at KUNM. He's concerned about ozone non-attainment because of oil and gas development. Tell us more. Right. So, yeah, I spoke with uh, Secretary James Kenney earlier this year, and he said the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, it was going to redesignate uh, parts of the Permian Basin, both in New Mexico and Texas, as an ozone non-attainment area. Basically, that's um, a violation of the Clean Air Act. Too much uh, ozone in the atmosphere uh, due uh, largely to the prolific oil and gas industry in the area. Uh, though I spoke with the secretary, and he really placed a lot of the blame on Texas. Jerry also mentioned this. You know, the, the border between Texas and New Mexico, it's permeable in terms of uh, ozone and, and the air. And so uh, he said the EPA is going to come down on New Mexico by the end of the year and declare this. If that were to happen, that would mean uh, additional monitoring, uh, much more intensive permitting. Uh, basically, the secretary says it could cost the state about $2 million more million to regulate at that level. Um, but as the end of the year approached, we hadn't heard anything. So I followed up with him last week to say, you know, what, what's going on with that? And he basically said the department's waiting on the edge of their seats. They don't have an indication that a letter that would have to come to Governor Lujan Grisham is being drafted by the end of the year, but it could. Uh, he basically said they're a great partner, but doesn't mean they're not going to spring a letter on us. Um, and as the legislative session approaches, he hasn't requested the funding to fully cover that $2 million extra dollars it would take to regulate at that level um, because he's focused on uh, making his staff whole. That's really the goal of his budget request. So he said if it does happen, whether that's by the end of the year or early next year, uh, he, they'd have to raise fees pretty rapidly.
Yeah, he has uh, off, their department is often tasked with the environmental impacts and regulating those of oil and gas. And he has been pretty vocal that they're not always able to do that. Right. I mean, while he, he put a lot of the blame on Texas saying, well, New Mexico is doing a better job of regulating oil and gas emissions in the area. Uh, over the year, we have seen, you know, he, he did not get everything he wanted in his budget this this year, um, and that has led to staffing shortages and an inability to retain employees who do a lot of this on-the-ground work. He also complained about the budget process, which is, as we have covered the legislative session, uh, you know, transparency remains a challenge sometimes, mm-hmm. figuring out, and even for the people who are the department secretaries. Or the reporters who are at the roundhouse <laughs> or looking online trying to follow all of this, yeah. Um, this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. We're talking about the top stories of 2023 in New Mexico. Which stories caught your attention? You can call us at 505-277-5866. We will be back in a moment. Support provided by Organic Books, a family-owned independent bookstore in Albuquerque's Knob Hill. Open daily 11 to 6 for a range of new and used fiction and nonfiction, plus journals, greeting cards, and gift certificates. More at organicbooks.net. Support provided by Southwestern Hearing and Balance Center, providing evaluation and management for hearing and balance disorders, located at 435 St. Michael's Drive in Santa Fe, 505-946-3955 or hearsantafe.com. It's the winter solstice with the shortest daylight hours and the longest of nights here in the Northern Hemisphere. I'm Fred Child, inviting you to join me for wintertime music and songs for reflection and peace on the next Performance Today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Megan Kamrick. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the year's biggest stories in the state. Give us a call at 277-5866 or email letstalk at KUNM.org. I am joined by a group of journalists who've been covering New Mexico for a while. And, excuse me, also in the news, often this year, were stories involving guns and gun violence. And it looks like that will be on the governor's call for the upcoming legislative session We started off the year when an unsuccessful candidate for the state legislature, Solomon Pena, was arrested for shooting at the homes of Democratic politicians. He targeted Bernalillo County commissioners who certified the results of that election that he lost. He then focused on Democratic state lawmakers. Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter, you contributed to reporting on this for The New York Times. Mr. Pena routinely called for locking up 2020 election officials in Guantanamo Bay. He promoted conspiracy theories about solar power, feminism, and, quote, the demonic theories of the globalist elite. He had been demoted twice by the U.S. Navy. He served nearly seven years in prison for burglary. And yet, as you and others reported, he got endorsements from the Republican Party in his election. How does this case perhaps show the dilemma for the party that continues into this next election year? <laughs> I'm supposed to answer that question. Yes, yeah, oh, you yeah. summarize that real quick. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it, it's quite quite the dilemma. Um, as I recall, it was funny when you brought it up. I thought, was that this year? And you're I right. Know, it seems so long ago, but this year. it's a long year. <laughs> um, yeah, I went down to the roundhouse and spoke with some Republican lawmakers um, for the Times to see if they felt that this showed, you know, some problems with their processes 
with the system, with discourse in America? And I guess the summary would be no, <laughs> they did They did not mostly. I mean, they, they thought it was sort of an oddball outlying situation that had happened and not something that they really could be held to account for. Um, but I think it was pretty obviously shocking for the politicians who were targeted and the county oh. commission workers. So. No, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, New Mexico, you know, when I look at my list of top stories, it's interesting how many things have been happening in the state that sort of intersect with national politics and with national stories and that made the national news. Unfortunately, often violent, violent crimes such as this one. But I think this was caught the attention because of sort of a, you know, a flash of just how violent rhetoric has become and that it's not just rhetoric, that it's sort of translating into actual violence. Um, Sean Griswold with Source New Mexico. I feel like the story was really shocking for a lot of New Mexicans because compared to some other parts of the country, we haven't necessarily seen a lot of extremist political violence. I mean, we did see Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin participate in the January 6th insurrection. He is an extremist and he's not actually violent. But is this changing? Because your reporter, Andrew Beal, has been looking at a lot of uh, extremism issues. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of people forget that a lot of the election denialism that has led to some of the violent extremism and rhetoric that people like Solomon Pena um, were sharing either online or just consuming regularly um, started in Las Cruces. Um, David and Aaron Clements were former professors at New Mexico State University. And they were some of they'd become the most one of the, some of the more prominent election denial people in the country. Now they've taken their um, their stuff across the country. Um, they were pretty heavy and, and working with other candidates um, nationwide who had some of this, you know, stolen election valor perspective. Um, and so it's in New Mexico. And while you know New Mexico does have a very democratic majority state, all levels of government here. Um, the the right wing and right wing extremism exists here, and I think it also has um, with with the way that our gun laws are centered, as well as just sort of the gun culture New Mexico has. You can see that elevated in a bunch of different ways. Um, I think we even saw that later in the year as it came down to the public health order that banned guns in public spaces in Bernalillo County from the governor. We saw that again when the um, there was a shooting at. Um, in Española around um, the, the reinstallation of the Juan de Oñate sculpture. Um, so these things exist and they happen. And when it's also considered around just the sort of general violent crime that isn't politically motivated that we see in New Mexico, they do begin to intersect. It's not that shocking for a lot of people. Um, but we're also noticing that just this rhetoric exists. And, and even if it's not in public spaces, what we're seeing with people like Solomon Pena and other people like him, including the shooter in Española, they all thrive online. And mm. that's something that we're going to continue to see grow and likely probably even perpetuate a lot more in 2024. So if anything, this was kind of an extension of that idea that 2020 never ended and we're still part of it. And I hope that people are prepared for what's going to happen next year. Now, in addition to those crimes tied to extreme extremism, we also had just some horrific gun violence, including a mass shooting in Farmington. The shooter was a teenager who had amassed a huge amount of firepower. Nash, uh, here with KUNM, you reported on the victims. How did this impact Farmington? Well, 
Obviously, really devastating. I mean, as any mass shooting would. Farmington is a small, tight-knit community. Um, the shooter, the teenager, really shot kind of indiscriminately, according to the police investigation. These victims were folks who just kind of happened to be passing through the neighborhood. It really could have been anybody. It wasn't a targeted attack, uh, according to the investigation's findings. Um, 97-year-old Gwendolyn Schofield uh, died from from shooting wounds. Her 73-year-old daughter, Melody Ivy, and 79-year-old Shirley Voita, who had stopped to, to check in on what was going on, uh, were all shot and killed. Um, clearly a, a, a devastating hit to a small, tight-knit community, as it would be anywhere. Uh, de- definitely. I also want to note, Nash, that friends and family said the young shooter was struggling in classes, may have had mental health issues, and it was youth gun violence that ultimately spurred Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to issue a public health order on guns, and we'll get to that in a minute. But this year, you also looked back on the 10th anniversary of the decimation of our mental health system under former Governor Susana Martinez. What is the landscape like today for young people who need mental health services? I think we can't separate those two things necessarily. I mean, I think when Governor Lujan Grisham took office back in 2019, she identified that as a priority, rebuilding our mental health system in in the state. And I think there's been some progress, no doubt. Uh, But when I held a, a roundtable discussion with providers, including folks who had their Medicaid funding withheld during Susana Martinez's administration and had to shut down. Um, she said that, you know, really the the system in particular for youth, in particular in rural New Mexico, has not been rebuilt nearly to the extent that uh, maybe the metro areas and adult services have, but really nowhere near where they were at uh, before everything shut down. You know, I do want to mention, though, while a mass shooting like this uh, is a huge, devastating potential impact of a lack of supports like this, much more often when you see young people in New Mexico unable to access mental health care, you see um, uh, maybe less newsworthy, right. uh, unfortunately, um, uh, consequences to that. Uh, you see ramped up substance abuse. You see youth depression and anxiety. You see a lack of hope among our young people that then leads to risky you know, risk-taking, risky behaviors uh, that can mean that a young person is putting themselves in more danger than they would be if they had the mental health support that they need. And I do want to say if you or anyone you know is in crisis or considering suicide, you can call or text 988. That's the National Crisis Hotline. Um, Andy uh, Lyman with the paper. As I mentioned, the governor issued a public health order in September following this terrible shooting outside the Isotopes Park that killed a young boy, and there was another shooting that killed a child. The governor sought to suspend the right to carry firearms in Albuquerque, and that prompted a number of protests, even disagreement with fellow Democrats like Attorney General Raul Torres. It seems murky whether any of this can be enforced, but has it brought the issue more to the forefront? Um, Yeah, I think it it probably has for the most part. I mean, that, that also might mean more contentious conversations and arguments. Um, It sounds like it's going to be on the call. Excuse me. It's going to be on the call for this 30 day session. So she's making it a priority. Um, It sounds from my read. It sounds like she 
is saying she's going to keep pushing on this this order, but ultimately she's saying, okay, let's try to pass a law to see if we can change it. Now, I don't know what that looks like at the end of the 30-day session. Um, a lot of things change, as including the bills that she sort of endorses. Um, and then as you and I saw um, covering cannabis some time ago, that the 30-day session she tried to pass legalization didn't work, and almost immediately she had a special session. So there's still a lot of options out there. Um, this order may not get us there, but um, maybe the law will change. Um, and she has indicated she wants a bill similar to the federal legislation proposed by Senator Martin Heinrich that would regulate firearms based on their lethality. We have a solid Democratic majority in the legislature. Is there a real chance for banning assault weapons of some kind or something similar? I think, it, again, it all depends on what that final piece of legislation looks like. Um, we've seen over and over again something that's very that's not palatable. And if it seem if, if her read is that she doesn't have enough votes, it could shift, it could morph, there could be some deals made to sort of get some and it's not it's not necessarily trying to get Republicans on board. It's gonna be some Democrats that are gonna probably push back on this. If I understand right, in terms of Heinrich's legislation, the Go Safe Act, it's not really about banning assault-style weapons across the board, right? right? It's about limiting their ability to shoot off as many rounds as quickly, be reloaded as quickly. So we may see something a little less, um, you know, to the extreme end of, a, of an all-out ban. That's what he he was trying to base it around the lethality and trying to get around some of these loopholes where you can modify a weapon. Right, basically. I think he was trying to 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 limit the the ability for those magazine something about it like a, a permanently fixed magazine that's limited mm -hmm. uh, to certain amounts of rounds depending on the type of weapon. No, oh, go ahead, Andy. I, I think um, the the other sort of success point is it comes down to ultimately what the governor sees as a success. So it may be considered what a lot of people see as a watered down bill. Um, but if it gets to a point where she thinks, you know, she can sort of say mission accomplished or close enough to mission mm -hmm. accomplished. So we could see something that sort of gets at that, but doesn't quite, but it's, so, you know, sort of gets a step further and she could say that's, that's good enough for me. Um, I do want to take a slight detour because Lauren from Santa Fe could not stay on the phone, but she wants to highlight the Bernalillo County Air Quality Control Board, as she calls it, debacle. So we yanked Bryce Dixon here. <laughs> <Nice to be laughs> he here. was uh, nice an unexpected here. guest because he's covered it so much. <laughs> Bryce, this is I know this is really complicated. Can you Very. give us a thumbnail sketch? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So this this story started off back in October with the Air Quality Control Board, as it's called. Uh, it, it all started with the Albuquerque City Councilor, Councilors considering uh, two bills introduced by uh, Councilor Dan Lewis that would both uh, completely abolish the board. And what that means is it wouldn't take away the board. It would just take away all the members and completely replace them with separate members, a new membership, as you will. And also another referendum that would establish a moratorium on their power until February of next year. So that happened in October. We, we heard a little bit of pushback for some people, uh, especially from the Mountain View Coalition. This is a coalition of folks who've been trying to get this uh, a regulation heard, a hearing heard. Um, they from, feel their neighborhood has been disproportionately yes, impacted yes, by it, polluting industries. Exactly. And that that is the HEEI regulation, the Health Environment and Equity Impact Regulation. They've been trying to get this hearing heard for a long decades, 20 or 30 years, they tell me. 
Um, so <laughs> Albuquerque City Councilors uh, approve um, these referendums, essentially abolishing this board, um, replacing the members, putting a moratorium on it. Mayor Tim Keller comes in, swoops in, and uh, essentially vetoes those votes. So we have a little bit of a mess there. City Council comes back in November, and they're like, hey, we're going to override this this mayoral veto. Um, But uh, after that happens, again, this is a very complicated story. The Air Quality Control Board comes back, and since there's a little bit of a stipulation on when the county clerk is is going to sign that legislation and when it goes into effect, they take advantage of that time, and they have the hearing anyways, and they pass the the rule, albeit very messily. And at the end of the hearing, when I was covering it, late into the night, uh, a lot of us were sitting in the room, and we were like, what what happened here? We, since we, even some of the we attorneys were, were like, wait, what happened? Yeah, a lot of the attorneys were just like, hey, what what happened here? What what passed? So we were a little confused. It was messily done. I think some of the Air Quality Control Board were a little confused on how their rulemaking process was going as well. They had a lot of help from their legal counsel trying to coach them through the process. So uh, it was very complicated. I don't think I do it justice by explaining it the way I explained it, but it's just a big saga that happens since October, um, and there's been a lot of pushback from communities across Albuquerque specifically. This would affect Albuquerque and Bernalillo County specifically. I know our caller was from Santa Fe, but um, it's been a big legal process, and it's it's very unclear if there will be legal processes. There might the be legal future. challenges. It might be a challenge from rule. you know the Bernalillo County Commission because this is a joint commission between Bernalillo County Commissioners and Albuquerque City Council. So it is a big mess. Uh, did a lot of coverage of this in the past couple of months. Very confusing. If, if you kind of want to get a, a bit more of an in-depth uh, look at it, you can go online to KUNM.org because I'm not really prepared to talk about That's this okay. right we now. That's okay. We appreciate but you I'm really, jumping in, Bryce. I really in, appreciate uh, that caller uh, talking about it. And I think Andy has done a little bit of coverage oh, yeah. with people at the paper, actually. I, so, yeah, I, go um, ahead, Andy. I just wanted to add to Bryce's point about confusion from the board. I think there's confusion and, and a lack of clarity all across this issue. Um, it's a matter of the city set up this board, I, I believe, by direction of the Fed, saying you have to have this this board instead of just having a department approve these because things. Because it's an environmental justice right. mandate. Um, okay. Yeah, and so normally, and in, in most other things in the city, it would just be the department saying, yes, we, you know, in regular zoning, right? The zoning department approves, um, uh, you know, new new buildings and that kind of or businesses and that kind of thing. Um, in this case, I think the city wasn't prepared for what the the board was trying to do. Um, I think the city was a little bit unclear on, or or maybe didn't make make themselves clear about what they expected this board to do. Oh, and I so see. It, it sort of gets to this confusion where the board says, "Yes, we can do this, and we can do it this way." Um, a lot of it came down to notice. How much notice some of these people, uh, the how much notice the public got for some of these hearings, um, and I think that was. That's that's where sort of we're going to have to see what this happens in this next year of as far as what the city decides to do with this board and and in conjunction with the county. But there's a lot of confusion all over the all over the place. <laughs> well, and I didn't really mention what this board was trying to accomplish in the first place with this rule because this board has a lot of power. They issue air permits essentially for the city and surrounding areas, and that can mean different things for certain types of businesses and industry here in Albuquerque. We have a growing industrial sector. And some of these communities, especially uh, I heard from Marla Painter, she's one of the 
big uh, heads of the Mountain View Coalition that was ahead of the this HEEI rule. Um, but she was just telling me there's a lot of in- industry in her backyard that is polluting, and and they're seeing a lot of impacts just from their neighbors. They've been here for decades. Es- and yeah, essentially no, the rule is you. Uh, before issuing an air permit, you have to take into account the cumulative impacts. Th- that's what the area. rule would yeah. do. Uh, it's again, it's unclear at this point where it stands. The regulatory board approved this HEEI rule, but we're not too sure what that means because right. there was a lot of stipulations. It was modified, and to be honest, when they were they were getting down to the wire for this rule on a Friday night, where. They were just trying to get it done. Uh, they were essentially some of the board members were like, we're trying to get out of here. We're going to get kicked out from the Albuquerque <laughs> Convention Center. So they just wow. kind of okay. essentially just passed the rule and and left it at that. And everyone was really confused looking around like, so did something pass? Did something not pass? So that's where that confusion comes from. It's kind of unclear at this point what these what yeah. this regulation will do. What it will do for the air quality uh, permit process, it's it's up in the air at this point. So uh, that's the kind of the unfortunate part of it. And I wish I could give a little that's bit more right, context to this. Bryce Sticks, <laughs> K&M, thanks for stepping in to help. Um, he's also on the phones. So yeah, a little discombobulated, here. but I really appreciate you letting me come in. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Um, I want to move on to perhaps an even wonkier topic redistricting. Looking at you, Nash Jones. Oh, yeah. If you're talking wonky, you should look at me. Um, Yeah, I mean, redistricting, huge story this year, but obviously maybe not the most thrilling, not the most exciting story of the year. I know the word alone can put some people to sleep. Uh, Not me, though. Uh, I was digging into it for about two and a half years uh, that that, from basically the inception of of when the maps, the voting maps started to get drawn, uh, um, to uh, just just recently, the Supreme Court coming down with their decision. So basically, the congressional map is the one that was contested. Uh, the, Repub- the state Republican Party and other plaintiffs pushed back, saying uh, that the Democratic majority in the legislature had politically par- politically gerrymandered the boundaries, um, basically making it too easy for the Democratic Party to carry all three congressional seats national congressional seats. Um, you know, the, the year started out with the Supreme Court saying that this case could even be heard in the courts. You know, that was a big decision. Uh, then it got heard in district court in the fall. And basically the ruling was, uh, yes, the Democrats politically gerrymandered this map, but not enough for that to be an unconstitutional map, not enough to violate uh, uh, the state or U.S. Constitution. So uh, they kind of they, they gerrymandered just enough for it to be passable. Um, the Republican Party then in turn uh, appealed, saying, no, they, they did do it enough. You know, the, the state judge who made that ruling, like they gerrymandered but not enough, looked, really based that ruling on the 2022 election, the only time that this map has ever actually been used, um, which saw uh, Gabe Vasquez eke out a win, Representative Gabe Vasquez, a Democrat, eke out a win over then incumbent Republican Yvette Harrell. Uh, Very narrow, less than one, I think 0.7% of a difference in that election. And the judge said, there's your proof right there that this is not a hands-down Democratic 
district always, right? I mean, Harold barely lost. Um, so uh, the the Republicans said, you know, this was a unique year. Uh, Harold was an incumbent. Um, it was uh, not a presidential mm-hmm. year, but we had a Democrat in the in the White House. That usually means a good midterm for the other party. It was a good midterm for Republicans nationwide. So maybe Harold got a boost from that. She got a boost from being an incumbent and she still lost was basically the the Republican Party's argument. Um, So uh, the Supreme Court went with what the state judge said. They said their their fact finding was was solid and will affirm that. So this is our congressional map until 2031 when it gets redrawn again. Okay, well, this is Let's Talk to Excuse me. Let's talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Megan Cambrick. We're talking with journalists about their picks for top stories in 2023. What's your pick? Call us at 277-5866 and let us know. We'll be right back. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA. When domestic violence unfolds in a home, how do you protect the children? We investigate the case of Leah Garcia and what happened to her son, Joseph, when he was placed in the L.A. County foster care system. My head's just going out of control. Where's my son at? Why hasn't anybody called me? How come nobody contacted me? That's next time on Latino USA. That's Latino USA, Monday mornings at 8 a.m. on KUNM. You have until December 31st to donate your car or truck and get a tax receipt for 2023. We'll arrange to pick it up, and even if it doesn't sell until January, you'll get a tax write-off for this year because you claimed the deduction in the year it was donated. Hurry! To get a tax deduction for this year, you need to call before December 31st to see if your car qualifies. The number to call is 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. I'm here with a group of New Mexico journalists talking about the top stories of 2023. You can email us at letstalk at KUNM.org and tell us your top pick. Another issue that dominated news coverage this year was abortion. New Mexico remains a state where the procedure is legal, which has prompted clinics to open here, including the clinic at the center of the Dobbs Supreme Court decision. And it has brought a flood of people from other states seeking care. Julia Goldberg from the Santa Fe Reporter You covered the most recent developments at the state Supreme Court. We're waiting on a decision by the court. But could you talk a bit more um, about what was at stake there? What um, what brought this case to the Supreme Court? Sure. So as you as you mentioned, Megan, uh, New Mexico is one of the few states where abortion remains legal and and legal without any real restrictions. So we've had a big um, influx, I think, I think uh, out People coming to the state has increased to 74% this last year from maybe 38% in 2020. And so at the same time, as soon as the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, um, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham began working, um, put in some temporary orders to protect abortion here. The legislature codified them and getting out in front of them some smaller, um, some counties and smaller municipalities uh, pass these ordinances um, not restricting abortion using a a very um, archaic 150 law. year old law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, called the Comstock Act, which is essentially it's from 1873, and it, it's basically an anti obscenity law that keeps you from 
mailing things in the law that are considered obscene, including anything relating to abortion or contraception. So Attorney General Raul Torres um, asked the state Supreme Court for a stay on those ordinances until they could be argued. So they're kind of in limbo right now. And that was what he went to court to argue last week um, at the state Supreme Court. And he he was trying to make an argument about them being um, not constitutional. And my reading that the state Supreme Court was less interested in that argument. Um, they were not that interested in sort of saying this is unconstitutional. They were interested in saying, doesn't this violate the law that we just passed on the Reproductive and Gender Affirming Care Act? The lawyers for uh, Lee County, Clovis, um, seem to be arguing, no, 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 we're not doing, we're not doing any of those things. You can still have an abortion here. You just, you just can't do any of the things that, you know, you just can't get any of these things in the mail or et cetera. And so, um, I, it probably wasn't supposed to be an entertaining, uh, court hearing, but I thought the Supreme, uh, the justices were actually being quite funny in my, yeah, you um, did have uh, some interesting exchanges. They were not having it in terms of that argument. It was, uh, it was no. very interesting. No, they were not having it from uh, the defenders of the ordinances. And they also, they really, you know, they made it pretty clear to the AG that they really didn't want to try to rule this on its constitutional merits and that that wasn't what they were inclined to do. Um, what I think is also interesting is that these lawsuits, um, these ordinances are really part of this concerted strategy that anti-abortion um, activists from Texas are kind of trying out in these smaller rural communities, they are also hoping to get that to the US Supreme Court. Um, so it's like yet another example of people coming to New Mexico with these strange archaic laws from the 1800s of being like, does this work as an argument? Um, you know, which is what we saw yesterday with the Donald Trump ruling in Colorado. I mean, that argument started here with Coy Griffin last year or so. That's my big takeaway from 2023 is we are the state to bring your weird 1800s law to and see if it flies in court. Uh, I appreciate that callback. I had forgotten that part um, about the recent Colorado decision and Coy Griffin. Sean, it's also important to add here that for Native Americans using Indian Health Service, abortion was never really available to begin with, right? You carried a story uh, I think from the Cronkite News Service about the challenges facing Native people, but there are also groups coming together to raise funds to help. Um, do you want to say anything more about that? I know it was not your folks covering it, but you carried the story. Um, yeah, I think that, yes, number one off the, on the onset, um, IHS, Indian Health Services, does not provide um any abortion related services or medical care related to that um, type of service, um, you know, very, very, you know, minor reproductive health services, if any at all, in some of these spaces. So if a person who lives and, and only goes to IHS clinics um, needs any of those, they have to either leave there wherever they are or, you know, pay um, to go to uh, Planned Parenthood. So, yeah, you are seeing groups. Um, Indigenous Women's Rising is one of the one of the groups that you see fundraising significantly, making a very prominent role in building a lot of these sort of networks that are supporting people who are coming in from out of state. Um, where, whereas, you know, for a person who is native, who lives in New Mexico, um, has options to be able to, you know, if, if they live on the reservation, um, they can go to Albuquerque um, or, or, yeah, they can go to Albuquerque um, and, and go there. But if a person lives in Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, where abortion is more restricted on a statewide level and they're an indigenous person who lives a tribal citizen, they have to travel to, you know, another state to be able to provide, get those services. And so, 
Um, you know, there was a little bit of an effort to push the federal government to change policies with IHS. That takes an act of Congress. And with the Republican-controlled House, they're not going to really budge on any policy changes uh, directed with the Indian Health Services. So that could be something that could become another political item that we that we see in this upcoming election cycle. Uh, we definitely saw how prominent abortion services were um, during the 2021 election, excuse me, 2022 elections. Um, and then we saw some of the consequences from that, whether it's a place like New Mexico where you saw new laws or other states that that created laws against uh, reproductive services. And that's totally going to be a whole other thing we're going to be talking about it up in this in 2024. Thanks, Sean. I wanted to stick with you for a moment, talk about the aftermath of the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak Fire, the biggest in the state history. It took place in 2022. It started as two prescribed burns by the U.S. Forest Service that got out of control. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, is supposed to be overseeing payouts to people whose property was lost or damaged. How's that going? Um, It's going slowly. Very, very slowly. And that's been part of the coverage. We've been fortunate at Source New Mexico to have reporter Patrick Lohman um, spend an entire year um, living between Albuquerque and Las Vegas, New Mexico, um, where he's been covering the process of getting people, people who are filing claims and trying to get either homes rebuilt or property cleaned up, um, watershed restoration. We were tracking Las Vegas had to you know, is, is, is in the process of um, creating a multi-million dollar new water system for drinking for residents in the area, which was damaged from the fire. Um, but individual claims are still at a very, very low rate. Um, I believe at last check, we reported about 3% of claims had been um, processed. And this is billions of dollars, nearly $5 billion, excuse me, $4 billion that is supposed to go to residents in, in Mota County, San Miguel County, who were affected by this fire. Um, Patrick's last reporting, and this was kind of very unfortunate, we were hearing about this from the very beginning, even when the fire was happening. We were told from residents that were saying, look, I'm going to die before I get any compensation from the federal government. And we just reported in, in one of our last stories a couple weeks ago um, of an individual who did pass. He was just he was he, he didn't have his home rebuilt. He was about to move into a trailer um, and he died. And um, so, so we're starting it's to sad. see how not only are you losing sort of the ecosystems and ecological, you know, the ecological impact of the fire, but now you're starting to see people and the generations lost from having to deal with the trauma and just the overall slow pace of getting compensated. Um, we did see some changes in forest management come out of it um, that that started that were prompted shortly after the fire from the U.S. Forest Service. Um, but it's still slow and people are still demanding, you know, more from the federal government and the federal government, I think, is going to have several years, if not decades, to fully compensate the victims that are part of this. I want to jump to you quickly. Nash Jones, Alice, our colleague, has done a lot of reporting around this most recently about prescribed burns, which remains obviously very contentious and how the Forest Service is trying to move ahead with a tool they consider important, but there's a lot of trust lost. Right. I mean, of course, echoing what Sean just said about trauma, but also about forest management changes that we saw. Uh, you know, the Forest Service paused uh, prescribed burning nationwide for 90 days to kind of rehash all of this after their prescribed burn got out of control and created the largest fire in, in New Mexico history. The, the guidelines that they came up with during that pause include 
the importance of building public support for prescribed burns. They, they believe this is an essential tool for them to use. Uh, but obviously, when smoke starts gathering in the valley, people who have lost everything are going to get nervous and upset. Um, so the uh, Alice, our, our, our reporter Alice Fordham, uh, covered some recent prescribed burning and, and what they went forward with beforehand to build that community trust. The Nature Conservancy held meetings, in-person meetings, intended to rebuild that trust. Uh, state forestry officials uh, spoke about uh, expanding reseeding efforts. There's a lot of community outreaches going on. These efforts include not only, you know, speaking to community leaders, getting them in involved, press releases, but phone calls, house calls, uh, showing up uh, to lend an air filter to someone with asthma, uh, really trying to rebuild that trust on the ground so that people can uh, see a prescribed burn going on and, uh, and support that that is good for forest health. We had an email from Srini um, about um, the a survey shows people want more frequent buses and ABQ rides seems to be moving in the opposite direction, reducing the frequency. Um, I wanted to ask you, Andy Lyman, from the paper, um, this comes also as the city council has made the zero fare program permanent. So now we have free buses, but... Not so many buses. Um, I, I believe that one of the big issues that the transit is facing right now is a shortage of drivers. Right. I think uh, this is for, Trans Santa Fe for, as well. For a number of reasons, right? I, we actually uh, just ran a story. This is a little... Um, people don't focus on this part as much, but... Um, one of my reporters did uh, a story about drug testing. And so the transit advisory board here in Albuquerque is asking um, the tra transit and, and the feds to normalize this sort of mouth swab for THC because, you know, arguably there's a whole lot more people using cannabis these days because it's recreationally illegal. But it's legal. federally illegal. Right. And so they still get drug tested. It's still a safety uh, sensitive position. Now, that's just one reason, right? There's a whole list of reasons, maybe pay, safety, all those things, why they can't uh, keep drivers. Um, or, or hire new ones. But my, that would be my guess as far as the, the biggest trouble to increasing routes. Mm. Uh, it is free for everybody now, and that's a, that's a permanent thing. Um, but yes, and, and growing up here, it's, it's always been that way to a certain level of, you know, some, some routes are every 10 minutes, other routes are peak hours, 45 minutes, something like that. So um, hopefully they can find more drivers and we can sort of make it a, a better transit city. We are rapidly coming close to the end of the show, but I want to acknowledge that this was an election year, though it was local elections. So there wasn't nearly as much participation as there will be in 2024, but there are some pretty interesting races, at least in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Andy, do we have a sense of how the city council races in Albuquerque changed the ideological makeup? I yeah. mean, we sort of have an idea, but anybody watching the council for even decades know that um, it is, it's nonpartisan. Of course, everybody does have their sort of political beliefs on the council. Um, but there's there's coalitions that happen all the time. So um, we we did have, you know, a more conservative Trudy Jones, uh, a sort of a conservative person replaced her. But Trudy Jones was also known for sort of crossing the aisle, even though there's not supposed to be an aisle in the city council. Um, and then we've got some more progressive candidates coming in. I think much like many of these stories we talked about, we're going to have to see how this progresses next year when they actually all start voting on things. We did a ton of coverage here at KUNM. Um, at Nash, we had a runoff in District 6 real quick. 
Uh, that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, between, that was between Nicole Rogers and Jeff Hain. Uh, Nicole Rogers, I mean, really, the, the runoff as it got down from a four-way race to the two-way race uh, really centered around experience. Uh, Nicole Rogers has shared lived experience with residents of the International District as a black and Hispanic single mom who's needed support services over the years. Uh, Jeff Hain ran on professional experience and, and his master's degree in education and those accomplishments. Um, clearly, voters uh, sided with Rogers, and uh, we'll have somebody uh, in the District 6 seat who has that shared lived experience and who also focused on addressing issues of poverty to combat crime rather than increasing police presence, which was Jeff Haynes' platform. Uh, Julia, Santa Fe also had a very close city council district election, but you all didn't have to resort to a runoff because you have ranked choice voting. Besides the ease of finalizing the election, was there anything notable in the Santa Fe election? I think the most notable thing was the mansion tax um, mm. that was on the ballot. I think it drove interest in the election, and I think it, it also really reflected just how it sort of in, intense and tense um, things are with housing in Santa Fe with just rising prices and a big influx of people moving here. So I think 74% of people, voters approve that tax. It's in the courts right now, but um, if I had to bet, I would say it'll probably stick and uh, go into effect. And that's, of course, a 3% excise tax on homes itself for over a million dollars for the portion over one million. And the Santa Fe Association of Realtors challenged it in court, and that's still pending. Uh, Julia, sticking with you for a moment, um, we saw a school school board candidate backed by Moms for Liberty, I believe, defeated. Did she or her message get any traction among voters? I mean, not not really. Okay. You know, I I think there were a few people that sort of came out and said, I'm not going to vote for the person that likes to ban books. You know, Santa Fe can Santa Fe certainly has uh, pockets of conservatism, but they send us they pretty pocketed. So, yeah. Nash, we also had a candidate backed by Moms for Liberty. Right. I mean, we saw Moms for Liberty uh, endorsed candidates uh, fail across the country. That was the same with Peggy Muller-Ottagon, who's been uh, a conservative voice on the APS board for uh, quite a while. Uh, she lost a very narrow race to Ronalda Tomewarito. And then uh, Heather Benavides uh, won over Stephen Checo, who, again, was a Moms for Liberty candidate. So we saw... Uh, Moms for Liberty's failure across the country play out here in Albuquerque and Santa Fe as well. Uh, Julia, just real quick, I wanted to, I can't not mention uh, the audit in Santa Fe. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, very quickly, it's late again. What's going on? What does that mean for state capital outlay funds? Yeah, Santa Fe... um Gosh, I should have these numbers memorized. Oh, the audits are always late. I will put that. They've been late for the last, you know, many, many years. They are catching up. They have now, they've gotten a, uh, a fiscal authority that's going to allow them to access the capital outlay funds at a tense moment with the state um, earlier this year um, and with the governor's office over some of the capital outlay um, funds for parks. Uh, there's definitely a lot of spin all constantly going on with these audits. And certainly while their bond ratings haven't been affected, the rating agency did say recently that could change um, if they don't get the next audit in by a certain a certain time. So it's just an ongoing issue. They, they would say they've caught up in a miraculous amount of time and it's amazing what they've done and they're on the right track. And I would say 
I guess we'll see because they haven't filed one on time yet. We are out of time. I want to give everyone a real quick lightning round stories we didn't get to you think were important. Sean. Oh, I loved our Gathering of Nations coverage. I don't think anybody's ever done anything like that before and watch it for next year. Awesome. Julia. Uh, the um, elimination of the expansion of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act from the National Defense Bill and the just ongoing fight for justice for New Mexico's uh, nuclear victims who got some traction this year because of Oppenheimer, but are still just sort of... Definitely. Uh, Andy. Um, I covered a little bit of the United Stadium uh, whole debacle, if they're going to get a new stadium. Uh, it's, right now, they sort of are in a position to start building, but I don't think it's quite over. There's still an appeal process that could happen, so I'll be watching that. Okay. And Nash, one uh, more. We, we got to balance the news, and so I'd say kids reading to dogs at the Santa Fe Public Library. Shout out to Megan Myskowski. Thanks a lot for Let's Talk New Mexico.